I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, and welcome to this very special Policy Forum pod, which this week we are doing in partnership with New Mandala, the website for analysis on Southeast Asian politics and society. I'm Nikki Lovegrove. Today, we're discussing America's secret war in Laos. We'll be talking about the untold story of how the war in Laos transformed the CIA from what was just a collection of spies to a paramilitary operation with enormous and enduring influence on US foreign policy. At the start of the 1960s, US President Eisenhower feared that Laos would soon fall to communism. His worry was that this would set off a domino effect in Southeast Asia. So, in 1961, he authorised a CIA operation to train a proxy army of Laotian Hmong rebels. The aim was for the rebels to fight in the growing civil war in Laos and to hold off the communist insurgents which were backed by North Vietnam. This CIA operation lasted for more than a decade and expanded into a massive US bombing campaign costing hundreds of millions of dollars. In the process, it completely devastated the tiny Southeast Asian nation. But the war didn't just change Laos, it also permanently changed the CIA. The Laos secret war is the subject of a new book called A Great Place to Have a War, America in Laos and the Birth of a Military CIA. The book is written by Josh Kalancic. Josh is a senior fellow for Southeast Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations, and he has written for numerous news organisations, including The Economist, The New Republic, and The American Prospect. He is also the winner of the Loose Scholarship for Journalism in Asia. In his book, Josh provides a powerful account of the Laos War and its implications for US foreign policy, and he does this based on years of research and first-hand interviews with many of the key actors involved. Some of these people include Vang Pao, the Hmong general who led the rebels in Laos, and CIA operative Bill Lair, who was the person who initially came up with the idea for training the Hmong. The book weaves together the stories of Vang Pao, Bill Lair, and other characters involved on the ground, while also drawing upon newly declassified CIA records in order to tell the tale of the secret war. Earlier, I caught up with Josh to discuss his new book. Josh Kalancic, thanks for joining the podcast. Great, thanks for having me. Josh, having published numerous articles on, and, and books on Southeast Asian politics, on China, on democratization, I'm sure you've come across a range of topics that have sparked your interest. What in particular inspired you to write this book about the secret war in Laos? You know, I was based in Southeast Asia for a few years in the late 90s and early 2000s, and I went to Laos quite a few times. And um, I was struck by the immenseness of the scale of the war that had happened there and it was still left. And then when I came back to the United States, I was really intrigued by the fact that it had been such an immense war and also that Laos had been for a short time considered so central to U.S. national security and then seemed basically pretty much completely forgotten in U.S. policy. And um, so it was a combination of things, but I, I was really interested in the way that U.S. policy makes these abrupt turns from intensely focusing on 
so a country, particularly a country as small and incredibly remote from the United States, to then basically almost completely ignoring that country. Much of your book is concerned with how the CIA's operation in Laos changed the country, but also how the war there changed the CIA. Um, but before we get into that, I was wondering if you could just set the scene a little bit. What was going on in both Laos and the CIA before history threw them together? Well, you know, I mean, Laos had been a, Laos had been a kingdom for a period of t- significant period of time. Parts of the country had been, and um, it was in French colonial possession until the 40s, although France exerted very little effort to both control Laos and to do anything really to upgrade the country. They viewed Laos as the least important of their colonial possessions in Southeast Asia and did almost nothing to improve the infrastructure or the education or the political system at all. After the Second World War, Laos basically eventually moved towards de facto and then real independence and was caught up in France's war with the Viet Minh, France's war with the Vietnamese independence forces. And then after 1954, so during the Franco-Vietnam, during the First Indochina War, there were incursions made into Laos by the Viet Minh, by the Vietnamese independence forces. And um, in fact, some people argue that one of the reasons why French high command decided to establish a base at Dien Bien Phu, not the only reason, but one reason was to block further encroachments in the Laos. Obviously, that, that was not a wise military decision, and it turned out to be. But um, after France withdrew from its colonial possessions, Laos kind of slowly disintegrated into civil conflict. The U.S. was involved the whole time. I mean, the U.S. was France's primary patron during the French the, the first Indochina War, and the U.S. was already involved in Laos in the 50s. The CIA was playing a significant role and was on the United States' radar, but it was still not at the center of the radar. And um, in 1960, the civil conflict that had been sputtering in Laos kind of came to a head. There was a coup, really surprised the small Laotian political establishment, there was fears in the Eisenhower administration and the Kennedy administration, which was about to come in office, that Laos was going to turn communist. There had, the civil conflict was between anti-communist and communist forces, the communist forces with the backing of North Vietnam. And um, it was at the time of the domino theory where U.S. officials believed that if Laos became communist, communist forces would move into Thailand. They could move to other parts of Southeast Asia. And so by the time... Eisenhower handed over power to Kennedy. There was a significant focus on Laos, and it was one of the top foreign policy issues to the United States. And one of was the issue that Kennedy brought up at his first press conference about foreign policy issues. So, in what had been building up as a crisis, burst into a crisis, at least from the U.S. view in 1960, 1961. And in terms of the CIA, what kind of organization was it um, before? things in Laos kind of erupted. So before the Second World War, the U.S. didn't really have much of a national intelligence organization other than outside of the military. And the U.S. created one, and then that eventually kind of, it wasn't the same people necessarily, but that sort of morphed into the CIA. Into the CIA. But before the Laos War, the CIA was a relatively traditional spying intelligence agency. They did spying, they collected intelligence, they did sabotage, they did all sorts of dark arts, they fomented coups, 
but there there wasn't there was only a very limited amount of kind of military aspects of it. They did some training of foreign forces like Chinese Muslims and others, but they didn't do large scale military training. They didn't run conflicts. They didn't, they weren't a war or, or paramilitary operation that changed after Laos. And so moving on to the title of your book, you write that the CIA leadership thought that Laos was a great place to have a war. What was so convenient about Laos for the CIA at that time? Well, I mean, there was a number of things. One was that Laos was a place that was becoming increasingly important to U.S. interests, but the CIA already had a fair bit of experience there going back into the 50s and an extensive presence. But meanwhile, the Department of Defense and the State Department, which were much larger and historically more powerful actors in the U.S. foreign policy establishment, didn't have that much experience or knowledge of Laos. So it was a place where CIA, within the bureaucratic turf fight, had a lot of knowledge. You know, I think that actors within the CIA saw genuinely that Laos was a place that the United States could use some power to train local forces and potentially make a stand against communism. I think that some of the people who launched the operation weren't uh, guided by nefarious ideas, but that were genuinely idealistic. So it was some combination. And then the, the third the third aspect of it was that in 1960, 1961, you know, it wasn't that long after the Korean War. I mean, the Korean War technically never really ended. It was just a stalemate. And uh, the U.S. population was not particularly excited about the idea of more foreign conflicts. The Eisenhower administration recognized that. So they had prioritized increasing covert action. And the Kennedy administration picked up on this. And they, the CIA, both the CIA and the administration saw covert action as a way in various countries as a way to maximize U.S. influence without really angering the public or having large, bloody conflicts. So in some ways, it was similar to today, where the United States has been going on more than 10 years now using the CIA and special forces to fight various sort of low-level insurgency fights all over the world without actually telling the public much about it or really even be, basically without even really declaring that there's a, I mean, they declare there's a war on, but in a way that minimizes, you know, information to the public and also minimizes the public's concern because you're not using regular troops. Your book deals to a large extent with um, the CIA strategy in Laos called Operation Momentum. What exactly was Operation Momentum? Well, when the operation started out in 1961, it was a program launched by one person and a small handful of people, CIA operatives who had a long amount of experience in Southeast Asia and was a plan to train and arm a number of anti-communist guerrillas, basically mostly ethnic Hmong, although it expanded to be not just ethnic Hmong. And the idea was they would train and arm them and they would fight for their own land and basically fight to keep, at the very least, to harass and help stop the advance of Laotian and North Vietnamese communist troops. They were supposed to be a kind of guerrilla force, basically, uh, kind of like the an, an anti-communist Viet Cong almost. And that was actually the way in the book some of the people who worked on the program initially described them as they were the United States' guerrilla force. It was like the reverse of South Vietnam, where the United States and South Vietnamese were fighting the North Vietnam's guerrilla force. But as the operation went on, as I describe in the book, the aim of the operation changed and the type of tactics changed, and it became ultimately, for the people involved in it on the ground, kind of a disaster. And so one of those people who was involved on the ground then was Tony Poe, who I was reading about in your book and just came across as a very fascinating character. He came across actually as reminding me of Colonel Kurtz from Apocalypse Now. Could you tell us who was Tony Poe and 
what was one of the more memorable stories you came across um, in your research about him? Yeah, so Tony Poe, which was was one of the or people who were early on recruited for Operation to Train um, local fighters, and he was really a type of character that the CIA didn't have that much of in the late 50s and early 60s, someone who had a lot of military experience and was really heavily involved in training and paramilitary operations. So he was essential to this operation because it was going to be a paramilitary operation. And they used him to train fighters. And eventually he started basically commanding some aspects of the operation on the ground, which is not what his bosses wanted because they wanted it to be deniable that the U.S. was even involved. The other aspect, problem was that he he was pretty out of control he encouraged pretty significant brutality as a means of kind of pepping up his guys which included according to him cutting off the ears of people they captured and basically executing prisoners the second problem was that he just became more and more out of control Uh, he started feuding with local leaders and he was drinking all the time and eventually they wound up i should say that despite all this he was still considered an excellent trainer and actually a pretty good commander on the ground but just became more and more out of control so eventually they basically sort of sent him into self-exile in an even more remote part of laos and where the Hmong operation was based and he sort of took that opportunity to build a kind of apocalypse now type operation you know in a remote area with a group of soldiers who were local irregulars who were kind of loyal to him and didn't really do too much else and stopped communicating with a lot of U.S. officials and um, basically just sort of deteriorated into drinking and paranoia and eventually was removed from Laos about 10 years into the operation, moved to Thailand and then eventually retired. But despite all of that, you know, I'm that that archetype of someone who is really um, as much a military type and has as much knowledge of training, fighting, commanding as actual spy. Tony Poe wasn't really a spy. Was a type that became much more prevalent in the Laos War and CIA, and has definitely become an archetype for. A branch of the CIA today. Yeah, very, very worrying stuff, especially the extent to which, you know, Tony Poe became the archetype, as you say, but the more honorable character like Bill Lair was kind of moved to the sideline. Yeah, I mean, Tony Poe isn't really the, wasn't really the problem. I mean, he, he had a lot of problems, including a lot of alcohol and probably, I would guess, although I can't, I'm not a doctor, probably psychiatric problems. So, he was definitely troubled, and some of his actions were brutal and totally beyond the pale. But the broader problem with the operation was not uh, – he was a, a lieutenant. The broader problem with the operation was that they started out with the U.S. and the Laotian anti-communists kind of on the same wavelength. They both wanted to basically – I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Or at least Lair did. They both wanted to fight for an independent Laos that was not communist, at the least some sort of democratic or pseudo-democratic neutralist country. I mean, at the best, they were hoping, I think, for a close U.S. partner, but at the least a 
non-communist neutralist country. What the operation – and they were going to keep it with Laotians, mostly for Lair, Hmong, but also, of course, ethnic Lao people since the country is majority ethnic Lao, doing the majority of the fighting. All of the fighting, pretty much. And what it morphed into was basically, at least in terms of the CIA-assisted part, a battle to just kill as many North Vietnamese as possible, irregardless of what the actual interests of Laos was. Just bloody the North Vietnamese so there'd be less North Vietnamese just who could fight in South Vietnam. But that, that strategy led to, first of all, the catastrophe for the civilian population in Laos and also wasn't really a strategy that fit well with the guerrilla-style tactics of Vang Pao and the Hmong. And third of all, it just it wasn't in the best interests of Laos, of the anti-communist forces at all. So the U.S. and Laos actually kind of diverge on the interests, and Laos became basically a place to sacrifice people in return for upping the North Vietnamese body count. And just in terms of this sacrifice and upping the, the body count, um, after 1966, Operation Momentum really seemed to expand into a concerted U.S. bombing campaign on the country. As you write in this book, this campaign made Laos the most bombed country in human history. Um, you cite an incredible statistic that there was an average of one attack every eight minutes for almost a decade. And you also say that it was at times willfully random. Why were so many bombs needed? And why did US officials have such a disregard for their terrible human consequences? The bombing campaign started basically because some US officials and also, to be fair, some Laotian officials... Asian commanders like Vang Pao had seen in the first Indochina War, the French Viet North Vietnamese Indochina War, that bombing could have a significant effect on the Vietnamese. Um, in fact, U.S. bombing and use of napalm, the brutal, had played a significant role in holding off not the North Vietnamese but just the Vietnamese independence forces for a while in, in Vietnam. But in, so they started using this in Laos, and Vang Pao in particular was smitten with the use of air power. But there was a lot of problems with the idea that air power could be effective at all in Laos. And one was there wasn't really that many clear targets as a country with very little infrastructure or even roads. And the Laotian communists and North Vietnamese were very skillful at hiding and rebuilding. So even though the U.S. bombers would attack them and try to cut their cut their trails and stop them, they would rebuild quickly. The second problem was that the bombing escalated really quickly on the U.S. side, and um, it sort of began to take the place of any coherent, really, on-the-ground strategy. And the bombing often, as it grew and grew in size, it started to be just totally incoherent. Um, bombers were attacking simply because the U.S., the CIA, the U.S. Embassy, Vang Pao and others wanted to simply show that the pace of bombing was increasing. So somehow the pace of bombing, the number of sorties increasing, somehow became some, something to signify that the war was going well. Just like in, in Vietnam, the actual Vietnam theater of the Vietnam War, U.S. commanders, Westmoreland and others started claiming that the, the body count, the number of people killed was indicative of success and that became was similar to what was happening in Laos with the bomb count somehow became indicative of success whether or not it was actually either a stopping the United States and Laotian anti-communist enemy or b totally irregardless of the consequences of it um and it got to a point where by the late 60s and early 70s you know bombers were dropping tons and tons and tons of bombs on Laos some of it with no clear reason other than that just they were they had flown to drop some of the bombs in North Vietnam, didn't find targets and dropped them on Laos on the way back to Thailand so as not to not to land with all of them. So it became just 
really a disaster. And um, as the bombing went on, um, not only did it destroy whole areas of Laos, and Laos today is still pocked with bombs and has an enormous unexploded ordnance problem, but um, the bombing didn't stop the communist forces and turned some significant sections of the civilian population against the non-communist forces because they didn't understand why there was so much bombing and the bombing was killing civilians. The subheading of your book is America in Laos and the birth of a militarized CIA. How did Laos change the CIA? What lessons did the agency gain from its experience in the country? If you're talking about the CIA, I think Laos showed for the CIA that the CIA could be a major player in the U.S. foreign policy establishment on the level of the Defense Department and the State Department. The CIA and the U.S. ambassador in Laos for some of the war essentially kept the Department of Defense mostly out of the planning for this conflict, even though it was a military conflict in which the U.S. was playing essentially a military assistance or often even a military almost command role. From the CIA standards, it led to a massive increase in the CIA's budget and their ability to launch paramilitary operation. They could say that they did indeed hold off communist takeover of Laos for a period of time. And a whole generation of CIA folks came up in the Laos war and learned about paramilitary operations, both people who actually worked for CIA and a significant number of contractors who worked as pilots, technicians, airstrike callers and others. Some of those people would go on to be involved in other paramilitary operations in Central America and Afghanistan in the 80s. And the ethos changed within the CIA to the, CIA to the point that paramilitary operations became an important part of what it did. Now, some of this was cut back in the 70s by the Carter administration, Ford and Carter administrations, not because of Laos, but because of other things that I don't talk about it length in the book, but the, the CIA, the, there was massive revelations about the CIA's abuses in the 70s, uh, the CIA and other U.S. agencies spying on American activists, spying on the civil rights movement, and, um, uh, overseeing a, a, attempted assassinations of foreign leaders and, and things like that. And so CIA was curtailed for a while, but not completely. And by the 90s, this paramilitary focus had, had been restored. And today, you know, since 2001, the gloves are off and many of what we saw, much of what we saw in Laos has been repeated in other parts of the world in which the CIA and U.S. special forces are really unleashed. And so what are some of those um, examples around the world where the CIA is using essentially the lessons that it started learning in Laos and the change that started there from it becoming a spying organization to what seems now a killing organization how right. Well, I mean, they still, the CIA still does plenty of spying. Um, but the, the difference is that spying and paramilitary operations became equivalent. And even after 9-11, paramilitary became elevated in importance in which the CIA and U.S. Special Forces, that became a larger, a higher priority, both through actual on-the-ground raiding and paramilitary operations in places like Somalia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, the modern equivalent of Laos's bombing campaign, so the drone program, which was which was largely controlled by the CIA, and some training programs similar to what you saw in Laos. Although, and I think even within the CIA, there was an understanding by Obama's second term that perhaps the pendulum had swung too far, and in fact, the director. Um, said that he wanted the CIA to move back and rebalance and focus more on spying and less on paramilitary operations, essentially targeting and, and killing. But that, that has, as far as I can tell, I mean, there are other people who 
reported a lot more on the CIA today. You know, there's an excellent book by one of the New York Times national security reporters, Mark Mazzetti, called The Way of the Knife, which um, looks at the way in the last 10 years the CIA has implemented this paramilitary slash killing program. But as far as I can tell, as far as I know, despite what the CIA director said, there hasn't really been that pendulum shift. Um, and so the CIA is working with U.S. Special Forces is still at the tip of the spear of United States war on terror. And the, I don't see evidence that the CIA has shifted back more to its traditional intelligence gathering role as its primary function. I know that you even write that a militarized CIA has become a permanent part of the American government. I was wondering if you if you see this as a threat either to U.S. foreign policy or to American democracy. I think it's a serious problem. The way that the CIA and Joint Special Operations Command have been used as the tip of the spear for U.S. foreign policy, for at least U.S. – it's not all U.S. foreign policy. I mean, the United States has foreign policies with tons of allies and countries where war is not going on. But for the war on terror aspect of the policy, it's highly problematic for some of the same reasons that it was in Laos. I mean – for whatever its flaws, the actual U.S. uniformed military has better checks and balances and better oversight um, and is more accountable to the public than Joint Special Operations Command and the CIA, which have virtually no oversight, minimal at best congressional and public oversight, have and have an, a culture in the paramilitary and the Joint Special Operations Command of opaque opacity. So it's real, very, very problematic um, because the public and even Congress knows virtually minimal amounts of what's actually going on. And over the long term, that's not good for foreign policy. And it's probably not all even good for the people actually conducting it. I mean, I there's an interesting article, long article that was published yesterday, I, I think, or two days ago in The Intercept, which is an American publication that focuses on a lot of intelligence stuff about SEAL Team 6, one of the elite Joint Special Operations Command teams, and some of the alleged highly problematic behaviors that they've engaged in. But it also suggests that this long-term being put at the tip of the spear of foreign policy, often in for repeated, repeated, repeated tours and with no clear oversight, is destructive to the people who are even implementing it because they're given no break and ultimately many of them are driven crazy. So I, I don't think it's in anyone's benefit. As to whether it's destructive to U.S. democracy, I mean, I think – I don't know if I can answer that. I mean, foreign policy should have more oversight. I'm not, I mean, I'm not sure whether there's a clear linkage between the continued paramilitarization of the CIA and Joint Special Operations Command overseas and U.S. democracy at home. And I don't know, but I'm not sure about that. Just a final question. In the last few weeks, we've seen the incoming president of the United States pick a number of fights with the U.S. intelligence community, you know, with Trump initially – denying reports of Russian involvement in the U.S. election. Given the enormous power that the CIA now wields, how do you see the intelligence landscape in America changing over the next few years? Well, I think it's important. Some people have asked me this, but I think it's important to understand that what's been going on where the president and the U.S. intelligence agencies are at each other is about their arguments or his trying to delegitimize their reporting of their actual traditional spies and analysts and that maybe that will, I don't know, I assume that's going to continue to go on or there's going to be a purge or the new CIA director and other intelligence agency directors will change that. I really don't know, but he's not trying to delegitimize 
the paramilitary operations of it. In fact, he's given every signal that he wants to expand the work of the aspect of the war on terror that includes CIA paramilitary operations and Joint Special Operations Command. Those aren't the people, by and large, who are involved in picking up intelligence about potential Russian ties or any of that. So whatever happens with, which is what is certainly like an unprecedented crisis with the United States intelligence agencies, he's not picking a fight with what I'm talking about in the book or with what I, what's going on in terms of U.S. paramilitary policy. And I don't think it's likely that he will. I think in think it's likely they'll go the other way. Whatever happens with the CIA's spying and analysts, I think that the paramilitary people and the Joint Special Operations Command, the people who are actually involved in the training and killing aspect of the U.S. war on terror will probably be more unleashed, if that's even possible. Very interesting times ahead, I'm sure. Josh Kalansik, thanks very much for your time. All right. Thanks so much for having me, guys. That was Josh Kalansik from the Council on Foreign Relations, talking about his new book, A Great Place to Have a War, America in Laos and the Birth of a Military CIA. His book is published by Simon & Schuster and is out globally at the end of January. It's definitely worth a read. We're really interested in getting your thoughts on what we talked about today. You can tweet us at APPS Policy Forum or find us on Facebook where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society. While you're at it, you should also check out our partners for this podcast, New Mandala, who provide great analysis on Southeast Asian politics and society and can be found at newmandala.org. And if you enjoyed today's podcast and you're feeling generous, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a quick review on iTunes. It only takes 30 seconds or so. And doing so is a big help in getting the word out about the series. Don't forget, you can keep up to date with public policy issues throughout the region at policyforum.net. We'll be back again soon with another Policy Forum pod. Hope to catch you then. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.